Women are integral to the history of beer, and no one knows that better than my guest today, author Tara Nuren. She returns to It Starts With Beer to talk about her new book, A Woman's Place is in the Brew House, published by Chicago Review Press. Tara has television reporting experience, writes regularly about the business of beer and alcohol for Forbes.com, and is a freelance writer. In this episode, we talk about roles women have played in the making, serving, and marketing of beer from prehistory to today. I'm your host, Will Sis, and this is It Starts With Beer. One, two, three, four. This episode of the It Starts With Beer podcast is brought to you by Brass Works Brewing, making a wide variety of beer in Waterbury, Connecticut. We're talking a juicy, fouled-up New England IPA, crisp and clean Edison Light, a vibrant blood-orange farmhouse, and my favorite, rich and chocolatey Abel Porter. You'll find their cans in package stores, and you can enjoy their beer indoors and out at their tap room. For more information, go to BrassWorksBrewing.com. You can listen to previous episodes of It Starts With Beer at BeerSnobWrites.com podcast and wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Both are at BeerSnobWrites. So Tara, thank you so much for uh, joining me. How are you doing? I am good. I am speaking to you from a sunny Seattle day right now. They exist? <laughs> yes. And apparently everybody is ecstatic because they're waiting for the moment that will come very soon when the sun goes away and doesn't come back until spring, apparently. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and you're you're spending these precious few minutes with me. That's right. Well, I was sitting out on a balcony looking at the water for a moment, but unfortunately, I do have to sit inside right now so I can charge my phone. But maybe maybe by the end of our conversation, I can take us both outside to look at this glorious Seattle view. (laughs) I love a journey. That sounds like a great idea. You wrote a book called A Woman's Place is in the Brew House. This is not the first book about you know, delving into the realm of, of women and beer. But it certainly, from from my perspective, it has the one of, one of the largest perspectives on it in terms of historical. And it also really brings us right up to the present day. That's a lot to chew off. Why did you want to write this book? Well, it needed to be written. There is no book like it. To my knowledge, there are maybe two books devoted to women in beer that exist in the United States. One focuses very tightly on British Brewsters in the Middle Ages, and one was a book that was written just a few years ago about female brewers in North Carolina. And that's it. So, so there was a lot of space that needed to be filled with the facts of how pervasive women have been 
endure and how monumentally instrumental women have been to beer since pretty much day one of humanity. Mm. Um, you know, it's too early for us to know for sure how things evolved 100,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago. But my working belief based on my research is that very shortly after humans started walking on two legs and migrating out of the southern tip of Africa, that humans discovered this substance that we might sort of kind of call beer. Sure. And um, as soon as anybody really started creating it intentionally, and I'm still talking pre-civilization, it was probably the women making it. What makes you say that? So I have read that in earlier hunter-gatherer times, men and women divided labor fairly equally. Sometimes the women actually did the hunting and the men stayed home in the villages to, you know, tend tend the fire and the children. But, you know, as time went on and it became men who pretty much did the hunting and women who stayed behind to tend the village and cook the food that the men were bringing home, beer brewing would have been one of those domestic chores required of the people staying behind and being sedentary and minding to, you know, the victuals. So tell me, what were your theories about the role that women played in beer history before researching your book? And how, if at all, did that change once you really got to doing the, the labor of putting the book together? What what answer comes to mind is I thought that women brewing was more maybe universal mm. in some times and places. For instance, there's a drink called sati, mm. which some American craft drinkers may be familiar with. Dogfish Head has made two versions of sati, for instance. And it's this drink that has been made in Northern Europe for thousands of years. It's It almost died out and now it's it's slowly being revived. But I had been taught about sati as being something that was brewed by women. So when I got into the details of researching sati, I found out that it was not exclusively the domain of women. For instance, those higher alcohol festival satis mm -hmm. were probably brewed by men. Mm -hmm. And then also in villages across Northern Europe, um, you know, I just referenced not being able to, you know, women being kept out of the places where men were brewing. I thought I was reading it wrong and I, thinking like, what do you mean men were brewing in these villages? Like my hypothesis and what I thought was that it was women everywhere, but that wasn't necessarily true. So to, to make a more universal statement about that, what I learned is that in history, nothing is ever 100% one way. Right, <laughs> right. And, and one, of the, one of the key ideas that I think comes through in the book is that while there probably was a time where women were the primary uh, cooks and therefore uh, Brewsters, and that, that men kind of got an angle in when there was money involved. Yeah. And when it was, the idea was that, uh, look, this isn't just this thing that the women do to keep us 
uh, sated and buzzed. This is an uh, this is a business opportunity. Tell me a little bit about where you saw that happening throughout history. Everywhere. One example I like to give is um, when lager beer took hold in America. Before that, for the most part, you still had brewing as a cottage industry with some women, you know, selling their surplus for pennies Mm -hmm. (laughs) to make a little extra money. But then, you know, lagering became popular. And what do you need to lager? You need equipment, you need cold storage, you need storage time for you need to to age and store the lager longer than you did have to store ale. And so the women would not have been able to purchase any equipment. In most cases, they couldn't even own property. But they wouldn't have even had the capital or the like, the thought of, 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 of cottage brewster buying a piece of brewing equipment is practically outrageous. So they lacked access to capital and equipment. And then if you consider what I said about needing to lager beer for a longer period of time in a cold place, well, that doesn't really jive very well with the nature of um, cottage brewing because if you're a woman doing cottage brewing, you just do it in like the little teeny moments you can find in between all your other chores. Mm-hmm. And that might be, you know, it could be any time of day, but you didn't have the ability or the place to age this beer and you couldn't necessarily keep it somewhere cold because you were brewing all year round. So that's one area where economics and industrialization, you know, more specifically would have had men come in and and do the brewing and, you know, push women out. Um, Really any time brewing became more professionalized when it became something that was done out of the house, Mm. that is a time when you'd see that transit, that gender transition happening. One of the elements of the book that I found really nice was that you bounce back and forth between uh, uh, p- times in history, uh, periods of history, and then into the present day. And one of the things I was wondering is, how did you decide which periods of history and which areas of the world that you were going to land on? Well, some were obvious, right? I mean, I knew ancient Mesopotamia had to be in there. I knew um, ancient Egypt had to be in there. I knew, you know, the Middle Ages in Germany and England had to be in there. And then other times and places tended to evolve based on what I was learning, what information was available and where I was in the world. So two examples, for instance, there's a really great book about um, what's called Every Home is a Distillery. And that is about alcohol production in colonial Tidewater, Virginia, Mm. like the Chesapeake Bay area. And, you know, that's about most more about like brandy and cider and distillation, but it certainly touches on beer. And so guess what area of the country I focus on a lot (laughs) for the colonial period. It's Virginia because this book exists. Yes. 
And then I end up spending so, you know, a whole chapter on Northern Europe because I went on a work trip to Finland mm. and I thought that was amazing because I knew I wanted to include sati in the book. And that's sort of the heart of sati making. But because the pandemic happened shortly after I got back from Finland, I thought maybe sati would just be like a little part of the book and then like lots of other geographic diversity. But I had I was grounded like everybody else during the pandemic. So Sati and Northern Europe became a bigger part of the book because I simply wasn't able to travel anywhere else. That's okay because that was such a that's such a vibrant part of the of the book for sure. Thank you. And yeah, I don't say that in any way to put down Northern Europe. It's just like, you know, that's how that evolved. And Scotland, for instance, you notice I talk a lot about Scotland when I'm talking about um, witchcraft accusations and such. That's because I had the good fortune to go on a work trip to Scotland. And I knew that people in Scotland had been collecting really good, well, the best witchcraft records. They can you know they're they've got this project to like identify and name the people who were accused of practicing witchcraft and so there's a lot of scotland in there because my travel and the information coincided now you um so it makes me think okay so so if you could go back in time to any part of the 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 areas uh, that that you researched (sighs) where would you go uh, because not just because you're curious, but where where would you have thrived? Say that you were you were in, you were a woman who was making beer. Where do you think you would go mm. that you would actually enjoy and not feel utterly and horribly oppressed? Nowhere. Women are have been utterly and horribly oppressed since before civilization. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was gonna ask ask like, okay, so am I a fly on the wall in this contra- construct or am I actually a living, breathing You're woman? You're living and breathing. And yes. the answers are, I'm living and breathing. Well, oh, that's a really tough question because <sighs> life for women has been more difficult than for men throughout most of history. And there is always kind of danger present. Huh? I, I love the idea behind your question, but I'm trying to think, I mean, I, it would probably be really cool to go to ancient Sumer or ancient Babylonia or ancient Egypt. So maybe those times, mm. but it's not like things were super awesome for women then necessarily either. Where do you think you would go then that you could just observe knowing that it was, it was quite horrible? You know, like maybe there's a maybe there's a spot in history that you can get the information now because of lack of information. Where would you go back to mine more information to bring back to us? Because it's kind of a blank spot in history. Oh, all of them, (laughs) you know, and, and I'm not trying to be flip, but part of part of and I'll give you a real answer in a second. Um, But. Part of the purpose of the book is to highlight the fact that women's stories have not been told throughout history. And so there's very, very, very little information about women brewing at any time in any place. Mm. So, you know, spots where there's a lot more information to be gotten everywhere, you Mm. know, 
I wish I could have maybe found out more about, I don't know, every place I would love to go back and get more information and see for myself. But what's coming to mind right now is, is ancient Babylonia. Mm -hmm. They had very sophisticated styles of beer at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was a time when women were owning what they called, you know, what would have been the equivalent of a tavern. And it was, a pretty good time for women then so that could be interesting although maybe I would prefer to go before ancient Babylonian times to Sumer because misogyny hadn't quite been codified yet the way that it became in Babylonian times like the code of Hammurabi those laws were written in Babylonian times and they were very punitive to women so Sumer, Babylonia. Like the idea, there's codified misogyny, and before that, it was just improvisational misogyny. You know, just, <laughs> I love that. Can I steal that? You, you, that's, that's, your, misogyny? Yes. that's yours. That's yours. <laughs> um, but yeah, all of it, all of it horrible. And luckily, though, this is not a depressing book, to be honest, because while there is plenty to be depressed about, you do speak <laughs> with people who are alive and kicking and have yep. survived a lot of that more recent misogyny and have really turned the power, you know, into their, you know, gaining the power of themselves. Can you tell me about some of the women that you spoke with that are, you know, pioneers or uh, living today that are inspiring? Some, some of the ones that, that bring that history forward. This doesn't exactly answer your question, but I do want to say that I had lunch today with Susie Dennison, um, who you will recognize as being the primary force, the working next to Jack McCollis yes. at New Albion. Mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> and it, it was it was her money and this woman named Jane's money that actually got New Albion started. So she doesn't address your question because after she left New Albion, she left beer, so she's not pushing it forward. But I was finally able to meet with her for the first time in person. Nice. And um, she's in her 80s and is still traveling around the world and in, you know, going to craft breweries in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle and still so, so very vibrant. And since the book came out, starting to connect for the first time with some of the women who were also brewing back in the day who she didn't know at the time. So that's amazing. My apologies. I needed to tell that story, even though it is not what you asked. <laughs> no, it's fine because the idea is, is not, they didn't think about this, is this book is a reunion of sorts. This has a chance, you know, it brings all these women together and that it's nice that, that someone could say, look at this book and, and reconnect with these women and, and find their stories, you know, all over, all over again. It's so amazing. I, I mean, so yeah, one example of, of both your question and what you're talking about, Susie told me the other day that she learned about Melly Pullman, who co-founded Wasatch Brewing in Utah mm. back in the eighties. Um, she read about her in the book, didn't know about her before, Susie's grandson is starting at Portland State, which is where Melly has found herself after leaving the brewing world many decades ago. And Melly is teaching 
high-level graduate classes in the business of brewing. And Susie emailed her out of the blue and said, I hope you don't think this is too forward, but I'm in the book. You're in the book. My grandson's about to go to Portland State. What a coincidence. Um, hi, nice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing people together. Oh, it's amazing. And, and so I feel like in a way that story does answer your question because Mally completely disappeared as far as anyone really knew from brewing for decades. She was in really high level academia, not related to beer, but then a couple of years ago, she took all of her expertise and started the graduate business of brewing program at Portland State and sort of brought all that to bear and turned it into brewing. And so poof, here she is again, like showing up at Pink Boot Society meetings at CBC in DC. It's like, Melly, <laughs> welcome back to the beer world. And so she's pushing it forward in that way. There are thousands of women who either started in the beer world in the 80s or the 90s, or even just, you know, in the past few years who are doing incredible things in say, Pink Boots leadership or in opening breweries that are really inclusive, welcoming, healthy places to work. She's not in the book, but my friend Melissa Walters owns Cohen's Love City Brewing in Philly. And that's one of those like really special places to be an employee. Every woman in the book is either has either done something unique or is an exemplary example of something that a lot of women have started to do in beer. And so it's like picking my favorite child. Like they're all doing amazing things. And I'm so happy to be able to highlight them. Tell me about that publican in Northern California that you focus on so much. She, she had such a great story. Oh, I just laugh when I read that chapter. Judy Ashworth, she's such a hoot. So that she's such an amazing example of a woman who completely transformed the way beer was being served at bars. And there's things that we take for granted now that are part of the beer culture that she did for the first time in the 80s. And no one outside, like, the you know, some home brewers and brewers in California know who she is anymore. So she uh, so she she took over this bar it was a biker bar on the east bay of california in the 80s and somebody turned her on to good beer took her over to europe showed her how people drink beer there and she came back and she was like that's how i want to that's what i want my bar to be so she banned smoking Mm. (laughs) in the 80s it was unheard of She served everything at the proper temperature. She built systems to run lines that stayed cold and had um, cask ale served from her bar. And uh, she did like meet the brewer nights and Christmas in July. And these are things, you know, meet the brewer, like that's so commonplace, but It's possible nobody was doing it before she was. She says that she was not the first craft beer bar. I don't know what that was, but she was certainly one of the first three to five in the country. And as far as I can tell, she's the first one to have, you know, come up with these activities and approaches 
that we're talking about, at least in the United States. So this is Lions Brewery Depot. Here, this, this is a woman who decided she was going to have a big old party called Farewell to Bud. Right, yeah. Right in the middle of, you know, Budweiser's, you know, taking over everything. And she said, you know, we're not going to have no crap on tap, uh, except, for, <laughs> right. except for Coors Light, you know. Uh, she, she had to have that on. That was only for a couple more weeks. Oh. I, I will correct you. She took the Coors Light off, too. Okay. But it was a few weeks after she took the butt off because she liked the Coors sales guy. <laughs> but it was gone a few weeks later. <laughs> it's those details that, that make this such a great book, guys. You got you to get this book. So, um, yeah, yeah, 86. So, I mean, I, I can't, so she's definitely a pioneer for sure. Yeah. Yeah. She's so, she's so much fun. She's really fun. Everybody needs to hang out with Judy. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote a, a a column for uh, the Republican American newspaper here in Connecticut. And it was a a profile of the book. And I had made reference to the fact that uh, you laid out some of the connections between witchcraft and beer, and I and I set out in my my brief piece where I talked about you know oh uh, Tara writes about you know how uh, women work behind, witches worked behind cauldrons that was very much like like mm-hmm. a kettle. What I failed to do is explain <laughs> that later on in the book you go beyond just talking about the connections. You actually start to pick apart the the ways that this is more cliche than history. Could you explain uh, <laughs> how you decouple uh, the the myth of the witch just being a reflection of uh, f- women brewers? So I have to give my colleague, Dr. Christina Wade in Ireland, all the credit for this research. She is a scholar in Ireland who leads a group for women in beer, and she also hosts a podcast about women in beer. And her research shows that the timing just doesn't really line up for us to make these facile conclusions about Brewsters used cauldrons to make their beer and we associate cauldrons with witchcraft and, you know, Brewsters had cats and brooms for various things back in the day. And those are tools of witches that, you know, we think of in, in child, in folklore. Yeah, they're super nice connections. They make for a great story. I even many years ago wrote a story making those connections before I before Christina was on my radar and before she had done this research. And she basically goes through and explains that if you look at the pictures of the era, if you look at the literature, if you look at what was going on at various times, like um, say the tall pointy hat, for instance, well, that must've come from the Brewster's hats that they wore to market. Well, you know, witches wearing pointy hats didn't, the first time that was, you know, illustrated wasn't until who knows, like uh, several hundred years later, for instance. So yeah, she shows that like, like the timing just doesn't line up. Now you've done a lot of research, you've written the book, and now you're promoting it. Are you finding that your hope is restored at all in terms of the fact that we can come out of this history and 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 make a better world? Or has this all all you know living in this 
in this era, living in these eras for so long? Has that kind of brought you down? You know, I think it's maybe two steps forward, one step back, sometimes one step forward, two steps back. Part of the point of the book is to show how the advent of craft brewing has allowed for women to come back into beer Mm -hmm. in so many different ways. So I'm super optimistic about that. And you mentioned, you know, this isn't meant to be a negative book. I mean, I, I do certainly steer it toward the positive, toward the inspiration, toward the hope, looking to the future, talking about the accomplishments of women in the present. So I am hopeful, even with what's going on in craft brewing right now with the Me Too reckoning um, that's taking place with women around the world speaking out finally about the harassment, discrimination, and abuse they're facing um, at the hands of their usually male colleagues, male bosses, you know, I see that as a huge positive because it's been happening. It just wasn't talked about. So, you know, that could be like maybe two steps forward, one step back. Okay. One step back. (laughs) These are really awful stories and women are leaving the industry like crazy because of them. And that's certainly obviously a negative, but I think the negative there is overshadowed by the fact that it's finally out in the open and we're talking about it. And I think that sunshine, there's some, some cliche about sunshine, you know, you know, being the best disinfectant. Yes. There you go. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not true. Literally, I think people have gotten that mixed up, but shine a light on it and and good things happen. But are you getting a feeling like we're in a moment of history that that in in a few years time we'll look back at and say, okay, this 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 these, these these were truly heady times for women in beer? Yes. Yes. And I love that you asked that. There's a lot of fear that the momentum needs to be kept up. We need to find ways to take action to make sure that this topic doesn't disappear with the news cycle. And I know that, you know, with the racial protests that happened in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing, there was that fear also. You know, we've, we've got the, the attention right now, but we've had it before and it, you know, what's the permanent gain going to be? And with those two things happening, you know, within a year of one another, I like to talk about gender and race at the same time as it pertains to the future of the industry. In that I think too much has already been, you know, brought to light. (laughs) about the conditions that women and underrepresented underrepresented populations are experiencing in craft brewing. And I think that most people in the industry are good people. And upon, and maybe they didn't realize that it was happening before or didn't realize the extent that the discrimination and harassment was happening. I know that a lot of people of all genders and races are really concerned about it now and really truly want to make um, the workplaces that they run better for the people who work for them and for the people who come there to drink their beer. And so I don't think we're going back. I think too much, I think there's already been too much momentum 
and things put into place that are continuing into the future that I don't think we're going to lose this. And I would think that part of the story that can shift is the fact that if you look at who has the power and who has the money, that if more women get into positions of ownership and get into positions of human resources and get in position of uh, guilds, that that can only be a positive thing. That that, that there there's it may be an illusion at least you know I'm I'm sure I'm sure I'm I'm missing something in there. But the idea is that if if you do have some ownership and you do have some stakes that go beyond just participation, but are actually in control of making decisions like hiring, that that's got to yep. be a big step forward. I agree. And, you know, as far as like female HR people, I don't even care. Mm. Just bring in good HR people. <laughs> I don't care what they're packing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But yes, female ownership I, would go a long way because then the women do ultimately have um, the decision about what kind of climate they're going to create. Um, and, you know, even the best intention men are not a, always aware of what they're not aware of. I mean, none of us are. We don't know what we don't know. Sure. Um, so as important as it is for men to listen and accept what people are saying that they go through if they're not white men in the beer industry, and that allyship is critically important, um, more women gaining access to the capital that they need to have that ownership position. Things really are different when women make the decisions. Sometimes it's really noticeable. Sometimes it's subtle, but things really are different because women are coming from a different perspective and do have those experiences that they might want to ensure nobody else has to suffer through. My thanks to Tara Nuren. You can follow her on Twitter at Tara Nuren to find out where she's going on her book tour and get more information on Tara. Go to her website, eyesontheworld.us. And if you don't mind a paywall, you can read my column on Tara's book. Just go to rep-am.com forward slash columns forward slash Beer hyphen snob. It's that easy. Welcome to the after party. Pull up a Victorian straight back chair and sit awkwardly in the corner. Have another beer. I'm having a main beer company pale ale called a tiny beautiful something pale ale. And it is tiny. It's not too high in alcohol. Five point something. Yeah, I could have done the research and looked it up uh, and told you, but um, you know, you can do that yourself. Five point something. And it's very nice. It's um, not probably at its freshest. Well, I know for sure it's not because we were up there in August and it is not August right this minute. It's probably not August right when you're listening to this either. But it's been in my basement in the dark and relative cool. So it's still very nice. Light, it's got a nice, uh, gentle stickiness to it, which I like a lot. And um, it's got uh, some uh, tropical uh, flavors in there, 
but it is certainly an easy drinking piece of work. Speaking of pieces of work, I've got that daughter of mine. I bet you're wondering. Uh, she's doing great. She's now 18 months old. According to all, you know, observations, she is acting a lot more like a two-year-old. And that makes me happy, for sure. It also speeds up the whole fathering process a little bit, I guess. But I love it. She's adorable. She's rambunctious. She doesn't stop moving from the minute she gets up to the minute she goes to bed. And uh, yeah, she's wonderful. I love her. My band recently had a gig at an old-fashioned New England Agricultural Fair. This one is called the Harwinton Fair, and it was a lot of fun. We crammed six of us on a little stage. We played for people who were either on their way to the rabbits and the chickens or on their way to the bathroom, so we were in pretty much a prime location, which is nice. The name of our band is South Road, and if you really enjoy cover band music that covers the 50s all the way up through the 70s. We're your band, so check us out. Uh, Yes, you can actually go to a website. uh, It's called uh, southroadband.weebly.com. Let's see, what else is new? I wrote a freelance piece for a different publication, which I rarely do. It's called the Lakeland Journal. And it was, uh, I'm sorry, Lakeville Journal. <laughs> I should get that straight. Lakeville Journal in Lakeville, out of Lakeville, Connecticut. And it's, you know, a piece about, about fall beers from breweries that happen to have fall in their name. So real clever, Kent Falls and Great Falls which are both in Connecticut and both making wonderful beers. So if you uh, see that in your travels in Connecticut, check it out. So yeah, that's pretty much what's going on with me. I'm putting these out a lot less often than I used to. I see that when I'm checking my stats and such, but that's just the way it is, folks. I'd love to put one of these out every two weeks. And I know that I could find people to talk to about it, but I, you know, between the time it takes to to make it and then edit it, it, it's a lot of time. So if I had a producer, that would make things a lot better, but I'm not going to complain. I'm working on one. One's in the can, ready to go, with David Nilsson, who is an excellent, excellent beer writer. And then I've got this long-term project that I've been working on, that focuses on Sacred Hearts Brewing Science Program here in Connecticut. I have a lot of voices for that one. Again, just gotta just gotta finish that up. Gotta get it out to the people. It starts with beer is part of the Hopped Up Network. You can listen to other beer podcasts, including Drink In, Geek Out, What's on Tap, and the Beer Man Podcast at hoppedupnetwork.com. It Starts With Beer is narrated and produced by me, Will Sis. Please leave a high-star review and let someone you know know about this podcast. I mean, you know, 
send it in a link. Say you you might enjoy this podcast about beer. The theme music was performed by me and drummer George Mastrianis. Background music is courtesy of Pixabay. Until next time, sip well. One, two, three, four.